You ever have a conversation with somebody where you tell them something and almost instantly they ask you a question and the answer is what you just said? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, I actually just said that to you, right? Let me ask it in a different way. How many of you are parents? (laughs) Yes, right? I'm just convinced when I look at my Christian life as a father of Jesus that there just has to be so many times that he's been like, I just told you this, and you're acting like it's new information. And yet I continually find in him what we would call the inexhaustible riches of his grace. I continue to find in him that every time I think I've learned something about him, there's more about him that I haven't learned. And it makes me want to know him more. And the language here that, that we've adapted in our church culture here is that, that the Christian life is this lifelong journey of know God and knowing God. <laughs> that we both know him and are learning to know him more. And as we know God, we learn to love God and we grow in our love for God in a deeper and deeper way. And as we love God, and this is where we're going to park this morning, we cannot help but share the story of God in our home, in our marketplace, in our community, and around the world. And we do that while we're connected with each other, which means, and I'm about to say something that's not going to sound deep. But we're going to unpack this for the rest of our time together. So lean in when I say this simple sentence. Which means if we are followers of Jesus, we have a compelling mission for our lives. Every one of us. And so the Christian life is not about discovering our purpose or discovering our mission The Christian life is about finding out the mission we've already been assigned, the purpose we've already been given, and then growing in that. So grab your Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you, and uh, we're going to invite you to join with us in our tradition. We always hold up our Bibles and say a creed together, and if that's where you are in your spiritual journey, then join with us in that discipline this morning as we hold up our Bibles and say this with some conviction today. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Hard stop. Let's say this with some conviction this morning as though we believe this to be true. Ready? Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. We're actually going to be towards the end of chapter 4. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 759, Matthew chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me tell you something. Um, This is a weird thing for me this morning. Um, I almost never, ever make any kind of significant changes to my sermon past Monday. For sure not on Saturday. And literally what we're going to spend most of our time on this morning, yesterday I just couldn't get away from and got out my laptop. And like, so I, I, I'm really uncomfortable today uh, because I'm really just kind of walking in obedience here. We're going to park on a part of the text that I was kind of just going to mention. And the Holy Spirit was like, no, you're not. And, and so I, I don't know. 
who this is for or what the Holy Spirit's up to, but I'm trying to submit to him and be obedient in this. And so we're preaching a whole different sermon than I intended until 24 hours ago. And a lot of preachers smarter than me can like wing that. And I'm really uncomfortable here. Here we go. Matthew chapter four. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea for they, I love this past tense, were fishermen. Now, let me just say, the next verse we're going to look at, if you're using a Bible that has red letters when it's the words of Jesus, this is one of the first things Jesus says to anybody recorded in the New Testament. But for sure, it's the first thing recorded after Jesus is baptized, begins his ministry, goes in the wilderness for 40 days. And for sure, for sure, for sure, it's the first thing he says to these guys. The reason that's important, since... We're probably not used to um, the way that a teaching of a rabbi works is when you're listening to a rabbi, the first thing they say and the last thing they say are really important. Actually, the most important thing is the last thing. Usually we kind of do the opposite. We start off with the headline and then unpack it. So interesting. I I want to just to kind of lean in as we hear Jesus say this. He said to them, verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's where we're going to park this morning, but let's finish the idea of verse 20 because their response is important. Immediately, what other possible response could there be? Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And again, the only appropriate response, immediately, They left their boat and their father and followed him. Verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I was not going to park long on these two words, follow me. But something I recently read in a book, the Holy Spirit just kept kind of pounding my brain with this particular sentence, specifically Two of the most important words ever spoken in human history are follow me. And if they're two, if that's true, that they're two of the most important words in human history, then let's slow down for a minute and let's talk about this. Here's the deal. I'm currently reading a great book by a guy who's kind of become one of my favorite authors in recent years. His name's John Mark Comer. Um, I don't necessarily align with everything about the way he views church life, but his view of the, the life in Christ um, has been really helpful to me. And, and so much of what I'm about to say, I want to give pre-credit to. These thoughts either are from John Mark Comer or inspired by this book that I've been studying lately. And the reason I say that is a lot of pastors will study well for their sermons and then get up and say something as though it was their original material. And I don't believe in pastoral plagiarism. So if you're about to hear anything that's helpful, I just want to give pre-credit to John Mark Comer. Okay, enough of that. The reason these words are so important, follow me is because we are all following somebody. Or we're all following something. All of us are. And often we don't actually stop and think about what are we following? Who are we following? Put it another way. We are all disciples. Now probably on your social media, that's not one of your descriptions on your about info. 
But we are all disciples. The question is not, am I a disciple? It's who am I a disciple of? Or what am I a disciple of? And for those of us who desire to follow Jesus, here's reality this morning. If we are not intentionally being formed by Jesus himself, then it is highly likely that we are being formed unintentionally by someone else or something else. Who are we following? What are we following? And specifically in this language, this follow me doesn't sound like these mega words. But if we could just rewind the clock for a minute and pretend to be first century Jewish men and women, then follow me would be like, oh, I know what that is. Because that was really common language for the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples. And so I want us to look at a little bit of historical context here this morning. Those of you who love history, we are not going to look at enough historical context for you to actually be happy. Those of you who really don't enjoy history, we're going to look at too much history for you to probably be very happy. So I would pre-ask for some grace as we talk about the historical context of a relationship between the rabbi and his disciples. Because what we're going to look at for just a minute is the Ivy League PhD invitation into the program of your dreams. Right? Next week we're going to take our 12th graders into Harvard Yard. And they're going to stand next to the statue of John Harvard. And none of them have been accepted into Harvard. <laughs> right? Like every year we go there and we're like, I mean, take a picture. Because, <laughs> like, this isn't where we're coming, right? Like it, it's the Ivy League. It's the, wow, only a few people get into here. And you just kind of long for that. That's the language of the rabbinical school of your dreams. So here's how this worked. In first century Jewish culture... You started out as a child, if you were fortunate enough, to go to the beginnings of what we would call elementary school. They would have called it Bet Sefer, house of the book. Bet Sefer went from five years old till 12 years old, maybe 13. In that time, in, a, in an, an oral culture, like that probably most of those students did not have a copy of the Torah, nor could they have read it if they did. But that was what they studied in Bet Sefer, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. By the time they graduated, not that it was such a thing, from Bet Sefer, they would have had the Torah, wait for it, age 12, memorized verbatim. Right? You're like, man, I struggled with, like, nouns and verbs when I was in elementary school. And for most young people, that's where school ended. You went back into your home, and you learned the family business, whatever that was. Probably by the time you returned into home life, there already was a plan for what your betrothal was going to look like. You were moving towards becoming a married person. By the way, I, I neglected to mention, this was only for boy students, and that's really important to remember in a few minutes. If you were the best and the brightest, like I'm talking, whew, like you're killing it, you got to go to the second level of education. If, if you were the brightest of the brightest, you got to go to Bet Midrash, the house of education or house of learning. You would get to continue your studies from about age 13 to about age 17. And in that time, you memorized Wait for it. 
hard pause, the whole Old Testament. Is that intimidating to anybody other than me? By age 17, you had memorized the Old Testament. Pretty impressive. And then for those few that made it to the Bet Midrash, you were then done. By and large, you definitely would then go be behind the rest of your peers to learn the family trade, to quickly get married, to quickly begin your life. But man, the few, the few, and the fewer of the few would get invited to be a disciple of the rabbi of your dreams. I mean, the very, very small percentage would dream about studying with this certain rabbi, and you would go to that rabbi, beg them that you could study with them, and they would grill you in this really intimidating way. And from what I've read historically, it was pretty public. It wasn't like, send this email. It was like, okay, everybody watch. I'm going to ask you a bunch of really intimidating questions. You're like, oh, that sounds like dating. Yeah, it was like really intimidating. And if you were the most fortunate of the most fortunate, that rabbi would extend you the opportunity to become one of their disciples. Do you know what they would say? Follow me. Or maybe the acceptance letter would be 50% longer, and they would say, come follow me. This was the check in the mail every day to see if you got the acceptance letter to get into the dream PhD program. When Jesus says, follow me, Everybody understood this is the the Ivy League invitation and to follow a rabbi. I've been using this language of Ivy League education. and Now let me completely blow up my own analogy. It was not an educational setting. It was a functional setting. Really, the language of follow me is come apprentice with me. Come apprentice with me. Under me, some of the best authors of, of recent history have actually stopped using the word discipleship because we don't know what that means. And they've used the language of apprenticeship because for most of us, we can understand that a little better. If you were one of the few of the few of the few who was chosen to be an apprentice to a rabbi. And this is this is where we're heading. And this is the part that's that's super important. Hear this from my heart this morning. Ugh. If you were one of the few of the few, your life now revolved around three Goals, consuming goals. Number one, be with your rabbi. (laughs) If you were fortunate enough that the rabbi that you dreamed would accept you, your life's mission was go where they went. Do what they did. Watch them. Be with them. There's a first century blessing in the Jewish tradition that you would speak over someone that goes like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That, how's that for a benediction? May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That you are so close with them. And so when Jesus says, follow me, what he doesn't mean is learn some facts about me and agree with them. He means let's do life together. Apprentice with me. To be with your rabbi became your number one consuming goal. Number two, to become like your rabbi. The goal was if I spend enough time with them, I'm going to find myself seeing life the way they see life. 
Like I'm going to see life through their lenses. I'm going to start to see how they respond to things. And maybe that's how I'll start to respond to things. And when I'm confronted with a situation, I'll think, oh, I think this is what my rabbi would say or do in this moment. All of a sudden I realize I'm spending so much time with my rabbi. I'm actually becoming like them. Jesus has this great line about when an apprentice is fully matured with their rabbi. They'll be like their rabbi. He uses the language of a student and a teacher. But it's this idea that if we truly are apprenticing with him, we will find ourselves becoming more like him. But that's not the end of the goal. The three consuming passions, the three consuming goals to be with your rabbi, to become like your rabbi, and then to do as your rabbi did. The, the reason that you wanted to get accepted into the dream rabbinical school is so that one day you might become a rabbi yourself. And here's what that would look like. If you made it through the training a season and, and life with the rabbi, which is an even fewer uh, few that did. If you made it to the end of that, the rabbi would say, OK, I give my blessings to you. Now go make disciples. We're going to circle back to that in just a minute. This is what it meant to be a disciple in Matthew chapter 4. This is what it means to be a disciple in 2024. At the end of the day, the invitation of Jesus to everyone is come follow me. That we will develop such a relationship that you will find yourself being transformed to be more like me than you were yesterday. And then you'll find yourself having a compelling desire to be on mission doing the things that I did. Namely, telling other people, come follow me. This is what we would call the Christian life. It's not what Jesus called it. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. The word Christian didn't even appear until uh, several decades into this thing called the faith and only appears a couple times in the New Testament. John Mark Comer said this. He said, contrary to what many assume, Jesus did not invite people to convert to Christianity. He didn't even call people to become Christians. Hold on. He invited people to apprentice under him into a whole new way of living. To be transformed as we were with him. And for many of us, our definition of what it means to be Christian includes absolutely nothing of being with Jesus, following Jesus, being transformed in the presence of Jesus, obeying Jesus, submitting to Jesus. And maybe what we need is to readapt some language that Jesus actually used where he's our rabbi. He's not just our savior from sin. He's our rabbi that we're following right here, right now, today. Maybe we need to change the name of this church to the first rabbinical East Fort Worth gathering of Jesus followers dot org. Jesus didn't say, whoever wants to be my believer, come with me. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple, which is more than just believing. This idea of what does it mean to be even a Christian, so much energy and effort is spent in our culture to figure out this. What percentage of Americans are Christian? 
and, and that, that's a question that people who don't believe anything about the Christian Orthodox are consumed with because for most of our lives in the room, culture has believed that whether or not you think you're a Christian will determine how you vote. Anybody? So as we go into an election year, it's a fresh topic right now. People, no matter where they fall on belief systems, what percentage of Americans are Christian? The most recent data is around 63% of Americans self-identify as Christian. If you've seen this data before, you will notice that that number is probably lower than last time you saw this data. Anybody? We're definitely on a decline, but 63% is still a pretty big number, right? Yay, Christians. We're still a majority. Except what does it mean to be a Christian? The problem with this data is it doesn't define what a Christian is. I believe the most uh, skillful and helpful data research organization uh, in our culture today is the Barna Research Group. Barna has put together some data where they've tried to quantify actually like being a follower of Jesus, like truly apprenticing under him. They used the language of being a disciple of Jesus. And they were like, so what are like the minimum bottom shelf things that a disciple of Jesus does? Like, I'm not talking like the the missionary who lives in the hut. We all think that's the spiritual person, right? Like, what are just the normal followers of Jesus do? Well, number one, their goal is to be with Jesus. So it's a person who has a personal relationship with Jesus in his word and through prayer and sharing their faith. They have conversations when it's appropriate about their faith. They they attend the house of worship on a regular basis, which is fewer and fewer and fewer Americans. And, And they put kind of this rubric together that here at Temple Christian School, we would call a biblical worldview. They use the language of this as a disciple. And what they discovered in their research is... 63% of Americans call themselves Christian, but based on their research, only 4% qualify as a disciple. Something's wrong. Now, trying to measure a person's spirituality is tricky. It's difficult. I'm not saying that number's perfect. Let's pretend it's double. That's still terrifying. Even as we think about our understanding of what's the gospel, knowing that the Holy Spirit was forcing me to have this conversation today at dinner last night, I asked my family, I'm like, okay, what's the simplest explanation of how we believe in the gospel? And they're like, oh, here we go. We're fixing to be a sermon illustration. Just just in our own language, right? So the language we've used here at Temple, those of you who were at Discover Temple two weeks ago, you heard us talk about our reality, our rescue, and our response. And pretty much everybody, the 63% who would say, I'm Christian, they would agree with the reality and the rescue. Here's the reality. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is not a distinctly Christian view, by the way. Pretty much every religion uh, that has ever existed acknowledges there's a disconnect from whoever their deity is. So that's actually not uniquely Christian. But our reality is we are sinners and we're not God. The beauty of the Christian message is our rescue. And, and, and we're using the language of 1 Peter chapter 3 that says Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, the one without sin, for the unrighteous, all of us, that he might bring us to God. That's the rescue. Like he did the work. He did all the rescuing. And if we agree with that, we can say, I'm a Christian. Hold on. To the reality of my sin 
and the hope of his rescue, it demands a response on our part, right? How do we articulate the response says very much about what we believe about either being an American Christian or actually apprenticing under our rabbi. Because this is the language that I would encourage us to use from Acts chapter 3. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped away. The word repent is a churchy word. It's a Bible word. I get it. But really there's a helpful redundance in this verse. Because repentance is a turning. So I love that he says, so turn and turn. Just so we can make sure we understand what it means. It's this idea that says, I was fishing, and now I'm following a rabbi. Like our story this morning paints the picture of there's this turning to God, not just saying, hey, forgive my sin, but saying, you've purchased my life with your blood on the cross. You with me? So what? how do I do that? How do I turn to God? How do I repent of my sins? I'm so glad you asked. Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified, the mouth one confesses and is saved. For many of us, the way we talk about the language of the gospel is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus died on the cross for you, you'll be saved. And the reality is the teachings of God's word is he's Lord. Like boss. In charge. I'm, there's, there's a language of submission to him here. I, and Jesus did not speak these words. The Apostle Paul wrote these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus would have been like, if you confess with your mouth, I'll follow you. You'll become my rabbi. I will be with you. As I'm with you, you will transform me, be more like you. And I'm going to adapt your lifestyle. Your mission is my mission. My Extended family are Roman Catholic. And I have some friends who are Catholics. And both my Catholic friends and my Catholic family will talk to you about the distinction between a Catholic and a practicing Catholic. Right? Any of you have any Catholic friends? John Mark Comer suggests that it is time in Protestantism that perhaps we borrow that language and lovingly begin to differentiate between Christians and practicing Christians. Which brings us to this incredible quote by one of my heroes, Dallas Willard. The greatest issue facing the world today. That's rather grandiose language. It's actually not the way Willard usually talks. That's meant to be like, red alert, Captain. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of the human existence. The greatest need of the world today is that those who vote Christian or talk Christian or check the Christian box on the survey would actually become followers of our rabbi. Jesus, when he says, follow me, is saying, hang out with me a lot and just watch the life that I'm going to birth in you. 
And he uses in this verse the word make. Follow me and I'm going to make something new of you. A few weeks ago, Hunter Wood talked about the new creation in Jesus Christ, the language of the Apostle Paul. That we're in Christ, we're a new creation. This idea that we are guiding people to life change in Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Like, we're just guiding people. Jesus is like, no, I'm going to make something new of you. And a lot of us would say, yeah, I look at my life and I haven't, like, tried to work towards this whatever. He's literally changing my life from the inside out. He's making us in something new. So when we're parking on a verse for this long in this detail... Sometimes it's helpful to look at what the verse does not say and examine that based on how we talk about the Christian life. Because what the verse does not say, follow me, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. It is true that we believe for the followers of Jesus, uh, followers of Jesus that heaven is next for us. But there's a whole now thing too. <laughs> He doesn't say, follow me, and it doesn't matter what you do, because you're forgiven. You do you. That's not the language. Follow me, and I'm going to make a new thing in you. Comer points out that if you just, like, casually read the Gospels, it would seem that the way we talk about following Jesus, we are selling ourselves short. We are underestimating all that Jesus invites us to as we apprentice with him. This is what he said. I want you to hear this, sweethearts, church. For Jesus, salvation is not just about getting us into heaven. It's actually more about getting heaven into us. It's not just about him becoming like us. It is about us becoming like him. It's not just a transaction, my sin for his righteousness. It's also transformation. It's not just about what he's done for us. It is also about what he has done, is doing, and will do in us as we apprentice under him. It's not just about being a person who sees themselves as loved by God, but it's about becoming a person Who's being transformed by the love of God. It's not. Hear me. Just accepting the merit of his death. It is also receiving the power of his right now resurrection. So here's how John Mark Comer ends this thought. He says Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. He's looking for apprentices in the kingdom of God. He invites us to so much more than we could ever imagine. Follow me and I will make something new in your life that you could never begin to dream of. One author said Christianity is more than a theory about the universe. More than teachings written down on paper. It is a path along which we journey. In the deepest and richest sense, it is a way of life. Follow me, and I will make something new. We're going to pick up the pace a lot now with the last couple words. Follow me, and I will make 
you. What we do not read in the text is there had to be a, huh? <laughs> Me? Are you sure? I didn't even apply to the Ph.D. program. Have you seen my test scores? You do not want to see my transcripts, Rabbi Jesus. Me? Yes. We are all invited into this glorious way of life. This consuming way of life. This transforming way of life. We are all invited. We've looked the last several weeks at John 3.16. God loved the world and gave his son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. In the Jewish mind, that doesn't mean ever eternal life after death. That would mean it begins when I follow Jesus. Whoever. Whoever. One last thought from John Mark Comer, and then we'll be done with him. I, I love what he said. He said, whoever meant whoever. Fisherman. Zealot. Tax collector. Betrayer, come follow me. Jesus said, follow me to the person devoted to the Torah and to the sex worker. To the person who thought they had it all together religiously and to the woman caught in the act of adultery. To the intellectual elite and to the blind beggar on the side of the road. Jesus invited all to apprentice under him into life in the kingdom of God. And nothing's changed today. He invites us all. We're all still invited. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, whether we're the oppressed or the oppressor, whether we're the upper middle class or drowning in poverty, whether we think we're the Rhodes Scholar in the room or a high school dropout, whether we're a health nut or an addict, whether we're mentally sound or not so much, to the virgin, the sexually promiscuous, to the married, divorced or divorced again. To the super religious or to the fallen away or to the ice cold, Jesus says, follow me. To the person full of faith, to the person full of doubt, the invitation of Jesus is the same. Follow me and just see what I will make of your life. And then he gives us a picture of that life. Follow me. I will make you fishers. People who are on mission looking for something. I do not enjoy fishing. This is not my favorite analogy of Jesus. Fishing involves stillness, silence, and usually early mornings. Strike three, I'm out. Let's get up at four o'clock and get out of the water while it's smooth. No. Have you ever slept in? Like what at four? I think the fish just feel bad for you. They're like, if this dude's this dumb, I should just eat that. Anyways. In this language, though, while it might not resonate with all of us, is the compelling mission of Jesus for everyone who follows him. And I just want to say this. I hope this makes sense. I've debated whether you can bother saying this out loud. So super smart people, or at least they think they're smart, are trying hard to figure out why 
the American church has seen such a huge decline since the pandemic. Like really smart people, people who don't even like dig what we believe are trying to figure out what's with the, the falling away of church life. And all of the research continues to say one thing. People say they've lost a compelling purpose for belonging to their church. And I would submit to you that we've already been given a compelling purpose. We might not like it. We might not be obeying it. We might not be submitting to it. We might not enjoy it. But we have been handed by our rabbi a compelling mission. Namely, that the world might be changed through our abiding with him. So I said earlier that the first thing a rabbi says is important. And then the last thing in the, in the, the Hebrew teaching, if you read a psalm, the last verse is really important. Here's the last thing Jesus said. First thing he said was, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Here's the last thing he said. Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. And not just go make disciples in your community, which is, or this region, which would be like the high-end goal of a rabbi. Of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then check this out. Behold, I'm with you always. You won't ever graduate from my rabbinical school. You'll still be with me. Even at the end of the age. This is called the Great Commission. If you are new to church or new to the Bible or new to the language of Christianity, this is called the Great Commission. Jesus didn't call it that. The authors of Scripture did not call it that. We've just adopted that phrase. There's some new data that says Christians were asked, have you ever heard the Great Commission? And they're like, I've never heard that. But they've probably heard this text preached on. So I'm just telling you, that's what they meant. If you were part of that survey and they asked you if you knew what the Great Commission was, it's these verses. But the reason we adopted that language of the Great Commission, because it's literally the marching orders for all of the disciples of the Rabbi Jesus. That we would make disciples in all the world. Tom Mercer, a retired pastor, in one of his books said this, and we're going to talk a lot about Tom Mercer in the next couple of weeks, but he said, God wants to change the world. And that should be no surprise to us, because that's not just a story in the Bible, it's the story of God's word. He wants to change the world. Unfortunately, he said, many of us are content with a good Sunday sermon, comfortable music, and then lunch afterwards with our family or friends. Most Christians, he said, show little interest in world change, much less being actual world changers. But a nice, comfortable church is not the plan that Jesus, the head of the church, laid out. He's building a powerful church that will change the world. So our job is not to find our mission or come up with our mission. It is to execute it. Mercer says it would be a sad waste of our created design, not to mention of the precious time we have on this planet, if we settle for anything less than bringing transformative change to a needy world. This is our compelling mission. This is what we're invited to. Then here's the last thing, and then we're almost done. I will make you fishers of men. Here's where... 
Jesus blew up all of the rabbinical traditions. Because his new rabbinical school is open to male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free. We're all one in his rabbinical school. So when he says that we're fishers of men, he means people everywhere, everybody. Many of you have heard me say this a lot, especially if you are an employee here. We are in the people business, period. We are actually not in the church business. We are not in the education business. We are not in the child care business. We are not in the facilities business. We are not in the real estate management business. We are in the people business because we're God's people. He was in the people business. It's all about people. Everything else that's a part of what we do is because we're in the people business. The reason that we invest millions of dollars of resources every year to help parents make disciples of their kids is because we're in the people business. We're not trying to crank out good boys and girls who will vote good when they get older. We're trying to crank out world changers empowered by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason we care for little babies in East Fort Worth is because we're in the people business. The reason we gather on Sunday mornings is because we're in the people business and we will continue to proclaim Christ and him crucified to every person who walks in these doors. The reason that we will do an Easter egg hunt in just a few weeks is because we are in the people business. We're not in the event business. We're in the people business. It's what we do. And so at its best, on our best day, here's what this ministry will do is we will speak over you. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And we will send you into your homes and into your marketplace so that you might look another hurting person in the eyes and say, follow me as I follow him. That we might be with him. And as we're with him, that he would conform us to become like him so that we will do what he does, which is love people. And invite them to follow after him as well. So how do we do that? Week after next, we're going to begin a a, um, specific focus on how we shepherd at home, in our workplace, and in our neighborhood locally. Following Jesus and inviting others to follow him as well. We're going to get very specific with that conversation. This morning, we maintain our focus on the global part of making disciples of all nations. And there's a couple things you can do. The simplest thing you can do today is come eat lunch with us because we think helping young people see the mission of God will help them discover their purpose. We're not going to Guatemala because we have nothing better to do. As a matter of fact, I've been to Guatemala so many times, I really would like to go somewhere new. But we feel comfortable taking students there because we've done that trip a lot. We're doing this because we, we think if a student can align their mission and their purpose with the heart of God, they can experience human flourishing. So come eat some tacos. We're also going to have a dessert auction today, and we're going to encourage you for just a few moments to set aside good stewardship. <laughs> and for just a few moments, we're going to ask you to profoundly and intentionally overpay for things. We're also going to encourage you for just a few moments to set aside Christian love that defers to one another. And we're going to say outbid that brother or sister in the name of Jesus. 
<laughs> and if you're not financially able to do that, then just come hang out with us and let's break bread together or break tortillas together. That's a practical way that you can help. There's one other thing that you can do, and it involves the card that was in your seat. And before we get to that card, I, I want to show you a picture of a young man. This is a picture of Simdat. If you have been to our orphanage in Nigeria that's out of the church called A Place of Hope, you've met Simdat. Some of you in this room recognize Simdat. I want to share Simdat's story. That picture was taken uh, in the middle of January, just handful of weeks ago, he graduated from seminary. Here's why that's a big deal. Um, for, for those of us who've been a part of the A Place of Hope journey for a long time, Simdat is our first A Place of Hope kid that sensed the call to ministry and went to seminary. And so this is an exciting, exciting thing. Simdat's story is that he and his three brothers and his sister came to a place of hope very early on in the story of a place of hope. Their father had a whole bunch of wives, and he died. All of those wives could not take care of all of those kids. They ended up spread kind of all around. And Simdat's story specifically is he was living alone in an abandoned hut. No one taking care of him. Again, if you've ever been there with us or if you will come with us when we go in October, Simdat's family is really easy to recognize. They definitely look like siblings. But the one thing they all have in common is that smile. (laughs) Some joyful kids. They've been with us for a long time. They are from an area called Joss in the north. Where a place of hope is, is safe and quiet and out of the way where Joss is there is a lot of unrest there is a whole lot of radical Islam and it's where they're from as Simdat gave his life to Jesus and began to follow Jesus he sensed the call of Jesus to go back to his village and tell other people to come follow Jesus. So this picture was the middle of January, but now I want you to see this picture from the first Sunday in February. Simdat had his first ever Bible study in his home village. He posted online that the first person that showed up that Sunday morning was his uncle, who only came to hear what his nephew had to say, his uncle worships idols. And for the first time in his uncle's life, he heard the story of Jesus. That was the fourth. Last Sunday, four more adults showed up and heard the story of Jesus. And the reason that's happening is because in its most exaggerated sense, that's what apprenticeship to Jesus looks like. (laughs) This kid who was abandoned and left alone was given a home and given hope in the body of Christ. 
and he encountered our rabbi and began to follow him for himself and said, I have to tell other people about this. In its purest form, this is all of our compelling mission. And to Simdad, if you're watching today, because he watches sometimes, Simdad, if you're watching today, here's our collective prayer for you. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. We want to continue to partner with people who are making disciples just like that. And that's why that card is in your seat today. Every year we we have a renewal of our commitments to what we will do as a church family for global mission partners all over the world. And I want to give a couple practical um, pieces of instruction about this. The first is a piece of information. Every single penny that's given to global missions goes directly to our global mission partners. None of that keeps the light on or pays the bills. That's what we believe our tithes do. This is, we believe, the first offering. However, we've made commitments to these missionary families and missionary partners, and so we need to know every year that we can budget well to continue to meet those needs. And so that's why we ask for this commitment. I would also say this. If if this is not your church home, please don't feel any obligation to give today. This is us doing a little family chat for just a second. So please give us a little margin here for a sec. This is for those of us who call this our church home. I hope that you've prayed about this. I hope that you've talked together uh, as husband and wife, those of you who are married, about this. Because this is what we're asking for you to do today. We're asking that you would either scan that QR code that's either on the screen or on that card. Or if you're in our database, you should have gotten a text three minutes ago from 94000 that has a link to this information. I'll say this about the card. Please do not fill out the link and the card because we will be confused if you do that. Please just do one or the other. And we would ask that you do it digitally. That would be much uh, easier for us, please. And some people like to give monthly and some people give weekly. And so that's the first question and we'll ask you on that link is are you committing to give weekly or monthly? Um, if some give annually and we are asking you to please divide that number by 12 and tell us what that would look like so that we can budget appropriately. I'm going to pray a prayer in just a moment and we're going to sing a song about the hope that we find in Jesus. And as we sing this song, um, we're asking you to hit send or submit on that form. Um, again, if you'd rather fill out the card, that's fine. You can fill out the card and then just drop it in the offering box on your way out today. But today's the day we're asking that we would... Uh, make those commitments to begin another year of our partnership as we follow Jesus and as we invite other people all around the world to do the same.